From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. My guest on this episode of Frankly Speaking is Josh Smith, the golf course superintendent of Arinda Country Club in Northern California. Josh is also an accomplished oil painter with commissioned artwork from the biggest names in golf architecture, including Core, Crenshaw, Dope, and Hans. But that's not all. Since April of 2020, he's been the founder of the Flag Bag Golf Company, makers of golf bags and attire primarily from upcycled golf flags that are from some of the most prestigious golf clubs in America. I was reading the other day about the new USGA method for organic matter testing that will be unveiled shortly and will bring a standardized method for sample collection and analysis. This will make your organic matter management programs more data-driven, and when you do, dry jack services should be on your mind for aerating, top dressing, and amending in one pass. Injecting all kinds of sand at variable depths, Dryject has become more flexible and efficient over time. Be data-driven with your organic matter management program and consider Dryject services for all your amending needs. Welcome to Frankly Speaking, Josh. It's really great to get a chance to chat with you and have everybody hear it because you're an enormously fascinating guy. We're going to get to the variety of things you got yourself involved in. But welcome to the show. You know, I want to make sure that the listeners uh, have a sense of, you know, who you are, where you came from. And I was pleased to see that you're a Michigander from the beginning, but then out in Oregon, I guess. You were raised in Oregon. Yes? That's right. I spent my first three years in Michigan. We still have a lot of family back in Michigan, um, but we moved out. My dad was in real estate. We got to Lake Oswego, Oregon, and grew up there. Does that make it so I can call myself a native Oregonian? Because I sure like to. Okay. Uh, but I, that means I'm actually native or not. Well, it depends. I mean, some states have very strict rules about this. Like uh, Maine has very hard rules. It's a, I think it's a bit from their German heritage to begin with. But I spent a little time in Michigan. And, of course, you know, you get to appreciate the natural world. But at three, you were barely conscious. So you come of age in Oregon. Did you play high school golf? And was that your primary interest and you went to college essentially to play golf like a lot of people I know? That's right. I started playing golf at about 10. And just to back up, no slight on Michigan. I was just going to say I was proud to say I'm a native Oregonian, mainly when we're talking about band and dunes. And then it's okay. real cool to say you're native Oregonian. But yeah, I loved golf at about, you know, started at 10 years old. At a, at, we have a nine hole par three course. Uh, it was 18 hole par three course in Lake Oswego Municipal and now turned into a nine hole course. But I grew up loving it there and played basketball as well. But golf was my thing and got pretty good my sophomore year in high school, I would say. I used to go and play with some friends that were members at private clubs. And I was wearing out the junior guest policy. It was like they actually changed it at Tualatin Country Club an H. Chandler Egan course, I think because I was there like so often. So at an early age, it was something you took to immediately. You weren't frustrated. You immediately played competitively or did you just continue to play recreationally and then high school happened and college became available? We did some summer tournaments, some junior programs, so summer tournaments. You know, I think I did break 80 for the first time in a summer tournament. Maybe I was after my freshman year in high school, I think. So I didn't do very well on the freshman tryouts, but I think the coach saw something in me and kept me around. And by my sophomore year, I was you know, shooting 75 back-to-back -back and second-best player on the team, I guess, in my sophomore year. 
that was at the Jesuit High School, which is a really good athletic program there in Beaverton, one of the top high schools in the state for sports. Oh, that's interesting, because we have the Jesuits back here east, too, in, at Fordham, at Fordham University and Fordham High School, and also you have the local Jesuit operations, McQuaid up in Rochester. It's a, let's just put it this way, you guys were disciplined around the schoolyard. We were. It was all male, all male. My first three years, and then we had females come in my senior year. Okay, so uh, very much like me. I went to all-boys Catholic school outside of New York City. You know, in your case, like in my case, I approached college, and I said, well, you know, what am I thinking about doing? I bumped into an advisor who then directed me towards agriculture, not necessarily turf. I found my way to what I was doing at the time. I was cutting grass on a golf course, and I got sidetracked into agriculture. You had to make that decision about college, and did you go to play? I did. I had a scholarship offer at Santa Clara, but I liked the optics and the scenery and the campus at St. Mary's enough that I went to St. Mary's as a walk-on and made the golf team right away and then earned a scholarship my sophomore year. Um, nothing big, just kind of a little bit of help with the tuition. There aren't, we're not full rides or anything, you know, at this school. St. Mary's in Minnesota? No, no, St. Mary's College right here the, in Moraga, California, not far from where I'm working now. Okay. Oh, that's very interesting. So are you in support of the golf team there now with your flag bags? I am. Yeah, we're doing some fundraising things with them, and we have them out on the Arinda Country Club where I'm the superintendent a lot. And it's still really tight with the program. And if you follow basketball at all, which you have to from back there, uh, they're a really good basketball team now. They're in the tournament a lot of years. Not to mention the rugby team Ooh. for a school of 2,800 people at the school. And the rugby team is like the top in the nation. So it's kind of crazy. <laughs> okay. So you're in college playing golf, uh, studying business, minoring in psychology. And, you know, the end is nigh for the college career. Did you consider playing professionally after you got some confidence or immediately it was to try to strike out and to do something. Then I'm going to ask you, were you paying attention to all those people that took care of the golf course when you were coming up? I, I thought that I could, you know, have a chance to play professionally, probably somewhere in my freshman year of college, sophomore year, I thought that there's a chance. And then once I saw the Pac-10 talent compared to the talent of the team I was on, I knew it was done. And Paul Casey actually won the Pac-10. I went and watched him at Orinda, which is where I'm the current superintendent. And I knew that. Watching him hit his drive on the last hole of the Pac-10 championship, I knew then for sure I was not going to play golf any further. And I took a real liking to golf course architecture about my senior year in college and started buying books. And I did a couple of on-campus interviews like with Coca-Cola and some other big brand and and I was like, wow, this is not me. And my dad had met someone that worked with John Fote's design company up in Portland. And he got me an informational interview to kind of talk through what it looks like to go towards design. And that fella, he said, spend two and a half years building a golf course with one of the larger builders. Get your feet wet. If you like it, go back to school for landscape architecture. And so that's what I did. And I was in a drainage ditch helping build a course from scratch, like within four days of graduating from a, a nice college. That's great. And of course, it happens to all of us that study turf. We expect to be somewhat in that ditch. Uh, you didn't. But 
at the same time, you had projects where you were bumping into people that you were probably reading their books at the time. Um, it was when the real boom was happening, and Wadsworth Golf Construction is who I was interviewed and hired by, and they probably were turning out 35 new courses a year. And the first job I was on, Andy Staples was one of the five architects that were on site. I mean, they had a huge you know, group of guys, and Andy and I were around the same age, and so I became good buddies with him early on, and Neil Mayer, and let's see, Damian Piscuzo, and a few other guys um, on that first course. And then, you know, I didn't get to meet the Dokes and the Core and Crenshaws and things for another five years, but I met some great younger guys that I had a real liking it got me out, it jumped out of bed in the day we'd visit with the architect. It was really exciting to be at work. And I love being outdoors and, you know, I was into photography. So, I mean, the only negative was I was working like eight hours every Saturday and all my friends who just got the four-year degree were like, you're working eight hours yeah. next, every Saturday. I'm surprised you weren't working another four or six on Sunday if the, if the weather had pinched you in any particular yeah. way and you had to get the job done. So this is a, not an uncommon story. We've had a lot of LAs come through our Cornell program over the years, Josh. And that is exactly the path that Brett Hochstein has taken. Uh, Paul Albanese took years ago, uh, you know, as well as Gil and Tom and all the other guys, right. That have come through and there's a million of them, of course, but it is imperative that you actually know how to work a shovel. In fact, I think most of them that I know, especially Wagner and Gill, they're happiest when they're riding on a three-wheeler floating the last float on the green before it gets seated. So is a real passion to it. There's real sort of method to the way not only it's done, but the way we train the people and they come up to do it. But it is a distinctly different skill set than your current employment, right? I mean, there are people, they spend their entire career growing in golf courses, building golf courses. And once they start having to maintain it, they're no longer interested in it because it's something else. I don't don't want to maintain it. Give me another one to build. And the golf boom, Josh, to your point, really cultivated that mentality, right? So how did you make that hard turn out of that fast paced, high energy every day to the sort of more reliable uh, daily routine of maintaining a golf course? I don't want to say it was a forced decision, but a few things led to the transition out of the fast-paced, large golf course builder. So it was around the time when there was kind of a a slight recession happening, and every job was about six months to eight months, and I had a girlfriend at the time, and it was still working out, but it was a challenge to always pick up and move, and I was no longer going to be a superintendent of construction because there was too many of us as the jobs were dwindling. And I was just going to be like a backhoe operator in Los Angeles. And and it's like, that was not very appealing to go remote again. And now not even be a superintendent because the pool of work was shrinking. And I decided I'm going to pull out and I got to figure out my next step. And I struggled for a bit, just collecting an unemployment check. And I started my oil painting endeavors prior to this. So it wasn't a huge struggle. It gave me a chance to focus more on my oil paintings. Just to back up a little bit, I helped build seven canyons with Tom Weisskopf in Sedona. And that's when I took up oil painting. And we were, we were not allowed to work Saturdays on that project. So I had the full weekend to figure out what I was going to do with myself. And I took up oil painting then, quickly gravitated toward oil painting golf courses. And within a couple of weeks, I was showing Tom Weisskopf and Phil Smith and the owners of that at the time what I was working on as a brand new oil painter. And I was very into it. So then, you know, another year and a half goes by and there's kind of the recession and 
I've got six months where I'm trying to figure out my next step. And I'd sent a career advice email to two people. And one was Tom Doak. Pacific Dunes was just being built. No one knew who he was, but I had been up there and met one of his shapers and had seen what he was building. And I was like, wow, this guy's doing something very cool. I want to want to ask him what career advice he would have for me going through five and a half years of building. And he got right back to me and I had attached a couple of oil paintings to the emails. And he said, if you don't have any better offers, I'd like to buy one of these paintings. And if you can hang around for two months, we're going to come out and work at San Francisco Golf Club, restoring some bunkers. And we'd love to have you pitch in and, and meet you there. So I had this to look forward to. And I was just jazzed to be painting and in communication with this guy one of the San Francisco Golf Club members was like, wow, this is a very discerning eye. And he's telling you your oil paintings are really good. He's like, that's, that's kind of a big deal. So I woke up not depressed about not having a job, but excited about what might be next. And every time I showed Tom a new Pacific Dunes painting, he was like, I might like that more. And it just kept building the confidence of the, of the oil paintings. Then I went on like a two-year helping out there at San Francisco Golf Club, went to help out with Mike DeVries at Meadow Club on a restoration. So I kind of transitioned from the seven, eight million dollar brand new golf courses to these cool old restorations where the work was done quite a bit differently. And those are the golf courses that I yearned to play and yearned to paint. And so it was kind of this cool metamorphosis for me. Okay, I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. As I said, I'm talking to the most interesting uh, Josh Smith, an artist, a superintendent, and an entrepreneur. Uh, this is Frankly Speaking. We'll be right back. Many say there's an art and science to golf course management, but your nutrient management program should be a science. And when looking for products that meet your nutrient needs, it's hard to argue with the long-term investments the plant food company has made in the study and best use of their products. Research-backed results and superintendent satisfaction are two of the many reasons to consider the Plant Food Company line of products. The next step is to chat with your local plant food rep or visit plantfood.com. Okay, welcome back to Frankly Speaking, Josh. And you started into your artistry, right? And you talk about it like you found it when you were still wondering what you were going to be doing. So there's always seems to have been at least a yearning for some creative outlet, right? Again, back to the idea of creativity. I think it's really fascinating, uh, particularly in your case, because a lot of people don't think golf course superintendents are creative, right? You know, well, you do sort of same gig all the time. And when I came to visit, one of the things that impressed me was that synthetic turf path you had made between those two holes. I'm like, this is this is really progressive, really smart. You know, I don't want to undervalue the sort of know-how that you developed from from building the golf course and now being a superintendent and I'm curious about the creative energy and where it comes from, and especially in the way you express it in this all plein air. My sister-in-law, Kathy Armstrong, does that form of art. Talk a little bit about the creativity in your art and also particularly that all plein air. Yeah, I think that the thing that weaves it all together is just having an eye for detail and being passionate about whatever it is. So overall, landing at a golf course that you have a little bit of freedom, there's all kinds of creativity that can go into your day every day. So that has been really cool for me. Back when I was working with Doak at San Francisco Golf Club and Jim Urbina, 
I was trying to figure out from Jim, hey, what do you think my next step should be? And I think he gave me really good advice at that point. He said, there's a lot of people that want to design golf courses. There's only a couple people that are as handy with a paintbrush as you are. And he said, I would focus on that. You'd be able to have one location. You wouldn't be moving around as much. He wasn't trying to say I wasn't going to be good at design. He was just trying to say, you, you might have a leg up on some people with this. So what I'm, what I'm getting at is I love golf architecture and design, but I felt that that was not going to be the right fit for me. I'd met some very talented people that it was going to be hard to make a living at that. And I was so fortunate to have the artistic outlet of oil painting. And then my first real entree into greenskeeping was at Cal Club. And, and we got to do that large-scale restoration renovation. And I learned greenskeeping ropes, but was immediately able to you know throw the artistry back into how we were going to build and maintain Cal Club with all fescue and, and bent grass greens. So there I was able to use all kinds of artistic outlet and creativity. And then getting my first superintendent job at Arinda, the same thing happened where I was given some latitude along with architect Todd Eckenrode to really, how can we make this the best it's going to be? And I think there are golf courses where you're a little more stuck with the blinders on and you can't make changes. But I would say most clientele are looking for that creative superintendent who's going to find something cool to show you or switch or change. Just bring the best out of every site you're at. Again, back to if you have if you have an eye for it and you're passionate about it, you're going to find a way to like the creativity is just going to come, I think. So So now you have a really nice job at a really nice place and based on the, you know, the bro hug I saw Buster Posey give you the day that I visited, I would assume you're doing pretty good there. And now your artwork, I mean not now, but obviously for many years now, you have a wide range of places that your art has been commissioned, is on display, the covers of books, uh, Seminole Golf Club, uh, Tom has it on the Confidential Guide. How many clubs? Let's do the numbers first. How big of an enterprise uh, is it currently, Josh? Uh, how many paintings uh, roughly have been commissioned and are out there in and amongst us? And then the, uh, you know, the cool stuff like the books and the magazines and stuff like that. Yeah, perfect. So uh, plain air paintings happen a little faster, but they're usually not golf specific. The studio paintings, I'm only doing, you know, at the max, six a year right now. I mean, it's probably even less just because I've got some other focuses, including my two young daughters and my wife, who's a, who's a teacher, a kindergarten teacher and works full time. Okay. <laughs> I do have original oil paintings hanging at Seminole, Meadow Club, SFGC, Sabonic, Old Town, some really cool places. As you've mentioned, Tom Doak has had me do the oil painting covers for his confidential guides and has commissioned a couple of gifts to owners. I was able to afford my wife's engagement ring on a commission from Tom Lehman. <laughs> Tom Lehman flew me out to the Prairie Club before it was built when it was just raw. And we had met at Cal Club. He didn't say much the day we met, but he got my number and called me. And I'm sitting at the Kentucky Fried Chicken with Thomas Bastis, my boss from Cal Club. And voicemail comes in on my little flip phone. And it's Tom Lehman. Uh, you know, and as a golf lover, you're just like, no way. And he says, we met back when, and I was wondering if you'd want to come out to Valentine, Nebraska, and I want to show the owners kind of what we have in mind. I don't know how I got on this subject, but basically I've, I've been able to work with some really cool people, and there are probably 80 originals out there, and there's probably 100 reproductions, 150 reproductions. I feel like I could grow the reproduction side of it more, but it's tricky. I don't know how to do that, and it's kind of time is is 
in short supply for me right now. But, yeah, 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 especially with a full-time part, a full-time working partner and a couple of active young kids in California. I want to follow up with a question on all plein air and that particular form of art, as you said, not necessarily related to to golf, but it is done in a particular way. Could you uh, just instruct us on what that is for people that maybe have never heard of that? Um, I'm aware of it, and I actually think it's kind of cool because it's it's very spontaneous, uh, right? It's it's a day, it's a moment, and I wonder if you couldn't talk about that particular form of painting, even though you might not have much time to do it anymore. It's a great hobby. It's a very fun part of oil painting, and I always had to be talked into it. I was getting some mentoring on my oil paintings through someone locally, and one of the guys in our class was really into the movement of plein air painting, which is basically painting outdoors in the moment. You you have a small canvas. Your easel is set up outdoors. Your only reference is what's in front of you. You're, you know, typically I'll be painting from photos or a collection of photos, but plein air is done in like 45 minutes to two hours usually, and you're painting wet on wet, and it's very nerve-wracking. It gets you excited. It, it makes you question every single move you make. You, you have the you have sun and, and wind and clouds. And it, it's very cool, I, and I had to be talked into it because I, I was taking this mentoring, and this guy was like, you should get into this, and I was like, oh, I'm just painting golf courses. That seems a little goofy to go out and you know have golf balls flying all over the place, and I'm glad he pushed it because I gravitated towards another artist that I, I really loved his work and he was painting plein air most of the time and I got into it and loved it. It helps you to see the true colors. Photographs tend to be a little on the dark side and overexposed. And when you're out there painting from plain, you know, real life, if you're good at it, you're going to learn more about colors. And I think colors are such an important part of any kind of oil painting that if you're if you're learning while you're creating some art, it's it's just a win-win. For the average person, Bob Ross uh, did something like this, yes? Yeah, I mean, sort of, but he painted really quickly, but he wasn't painting from life. He was right. painting more from imagination, wasn't he? <laughs> I used to fall asleep to that guy on a pretty regular basis after working 12 hours at a golf course, but I know... And I've heard the excitement associated with all plein air and how you do have to analyze every stroke and their competitions, right? Sometimes they're competitions. There are. And yeah, and I haven't ever been in one. I'm pretty introverted, but I enjoy it so much. So I go out and set up and then you'll have these random people coming up and want to talk to you. And I remember the first, I think it was the first time I ever did it was in Pacifica, over by Sharp Park, that old Alistair McKenzie course. And I had a guy come up to me and he kind of said something like, oh, you're really new at this, aren't you? And I was just like, you know, what was that old saying? If you don't have something good to say, <laughs> don't, don't say think, anything. You, know, you just get all these random people and it, it makes you nervous and excited and it's cool. So I, I tend to fit that in mostly when I'm on vacation because I kind of just have some time to kill. Josh, let's take another break and we'll come back and wrap up our conversation with your flag bag venture with your brother. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. I'm with Josh Schmidt. We'll be right back. Golf turf sprayers are firing up in the north these days with seed head suppression, insect, disease, and weed control. By now, your spray rig should be in top form, but if it isn't, your go-to solutions company for all your spraying needs is Frost Spray Technologies. The knowledgeable sales and service staff at Frost are committed to being the one stop for all your spray needs and the place you look to for the latest technology. 
Find them at frostserve.com. That's frost, S-E-R-V.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. Frank Rossi here. I'm with Josh Smith, uh, the golf course superintendent at Orinda Country Club in Northern California. I had a lovely visit, and it was Buster Posey I saw that day because that morning I was visiting Greg Elliott out at whatever they call it now, place where the Giants play. Is it Oracle Park still? I think it's Oracle Park, yeah. Yep, okay. I, I see this big poster of him out there, and I think he had just retired. And then later that day I bumped into him. Uh, on your golf course. And I will say, just an absolutely beautiful piece of land that you and Todd, you know, and the members have really exposed and, and did a wonderful job. I mean, that, that place is really, looks like it's great fun to play, which is the best thing you can say about, I think, any golf course. But speaking of fun, you were not done, apparently, before you had a busy wife and two kids starting another venture, somehow feeling bad for all the golf flags you had accumulated. People have these things with seashells and wine corks and a whole collection of things people like to collect. You, it was golf flags, and you had a spark uh, of an idea, and first you played around, or you talked to your brother immediately uh, and got the venture going. How did the flag bag company come about? Okay, so flag bag, here, I'm going to start real quick. So uh, Orinda Country Club is an awesome place. It's 1924, William Watson design, and he's a Scotsman. He lived eight miles from St. Andrews in the time that old Tom was still working there. So mm. really cool place to be. The routing is amazing, and each hole is totally unique and awesome, and there's two creeks that come together. It's really cool. It's beautiful. Um, but I had worked at all these great places like Meadow Club, San Francisco Golf Club, Cal Club, and the flags came off every six months and they went into a box and you kept them around in case something got broken or stolen and you had one to spare. But it was time to clear out the barn and they would get thrown away. And I was never part of that. I was like, I'm going to hang on to these. I end up collecting these flags in my trunk or whatever. And same thing happened. I got my first head job after seven years at, uh, as an assistant at Cal Club. And here I am. I'm in charge of what the flags do after they come off and I just set them in a box and then my head pro at the time walked down after our men's invitational and had 22 really new flags they flew for two days or three days and he's like can you do something with these flags I can't give them to members that it can't uh, prioritize you know and play favorites and I thought yeah yeah I'll figure out what to do with these this will be cool and uh, so now I had a, almost a brand new 22 flags and I'm like okay so I've had some ideas but here it is. I've got, what's that? $35 per flag. That's a lot of money in flags. Yeah. <laughs> I got to do something. with these. And uh, that's what spurred it. He didn't say what to do. He's just like, can you do something with these? Like, will you get rid of them? My kids were, I think, four and six at the time. You know, we had some golf clubs or whatever. And I thought, oh, I'll just make a quiver. I'll figure out how to make like a little quiver. Because I've always been a lay down golf bag guy. I've always been like an old school guy. And I was like, I'll make a little quiver for my daughter's tiny clubs. And this will be made out of a golf flag. And that'll be really cool. And then I think I sat with that idea for three months plus, never did anything with it. I don't never sewn. So how was I going to do it? I was spraying greens that morning and I had been in touch with the owner of Mackenzie golf bags way back from when I was like 14 years old. There's the, the coolest leather bags were developed by Peter Jacobson and his brother back in Portland, Oregon. And there was a factory near my house, so I used to buy blemished leather golf bag for a lot of money, but still like a really good value. 
And so I knew like the early owners. And then I met the owner that took over the company and ran it for 14 years. And he became a good friend in Portland. He had since moved on from that company that couldn't get along with one of the guys that was there. And so he had branched off and started another golf bag company. He's made the finest leather bags in the U.S. for many, many years. And and I pulled off to the, the side of the fourth green after spraying something. And I said, I'm going to text Todd. And I think I texted him or called him. And I said, have you ever thought about making a golf bag out of flags? And he said, I never have, but let's try it. So the next morning, I believe I got him out six to eight flags the next morning. And I was checking in monthly. I was like, how's it coming? What do you think of this idea? Nothing, nothing. You know, oh, yeah, it sounds really cool. Uh, Yeah, I'll I'll have something for you soon. You know, and I'm playing with him right now. But uh, it was time to move my dad into a care home. And I was like, well, I'm going to be up in town seven months later. I'm going to be up in town um, this Friday. He said, oh, you should come by. And um, I got something I want to show you. So I got up there. We met at the public golf course in Beaverton that I just spent $6 for 18 holes. And we met there at Progress Downs and had a beer and he showed me this bag and I was like, oh yeah, this is going to be a hit. So I went home a day and a half later, sitting there in the family room, my brother was there and I said, hey Matt, you want to come to this next meeting with me? Because I'm not going to have time to do this, but I think this could be really cool. And we have the same taste in old style, traditional golf. He's a Dartmouth, you know, MBA guy and had a lot of free time. And he's like, (laughs) yeah, I'll come with you. And so we got to this meeting and we're like, hey, like, I think this, I have the crystal ball. I think this is going to be a hit. Uh, I just got a really good feeling about it. So we set up, okay, we'll plan to launch in 10 weeks. And I'm going to reach out to every superintendent I can. Like, you know, I'm reaching out to Kyle Hegland at Sandhills, Bill Salonetti at NGLA, yeah, yeah. San Francisco Golf Club. I'm getting this really cool reach from the, the connections I've had. Oh, sure. And I'm sending messages top secret at night. And they're, I'm saying, hey, this, this is top secret. You can't share this, but this is what I'm thinking. Would you send me some flags? And they're all like, Oh, kick ass. This is so cool. <laughs> you know. Um, and we were going to launch it like April 1st, right. As COVID was kind of heating up, we didn't have six bags done. I think we were trying to get six bags done or 10 bags. And we are like, okay, it's, it's gone too far. So we launched it. I think it was like two days ago. It was our three year anniversary and we launched it. We didn't even have a website up yet, but yeah, it's been a very, very fun three years working with that and all the stories that have come with it. And I feel bad. My wife's, you know, she's going through the trenches in COVID with teaching kindergarten. And here I am at night, just couldn't be more excited to be working on a third gig. That's pretty exciting to me. That's right. So um, I thought it was really fascinating. Obviously you're making more than bags. Now you got a whole bunch of swag that you can get at flagbaggolfco.com. We'll do the shameless uh, promotion. It's one of the great things of having a podcast. You can, you know, help your friends and hurt your enemies uh, and get a good table uh, at restaurants sometimes too. Um, <laughs> so you're making a bunch of different stuff. So that's really good. I know Billy Salinetti. He's been at, you know, National Golf Links for a while now. I knew him as he was coming up. And probably like you at the clubs, they have these flags laying around and they're getting rid of them. So are you getting the old ones or the new ones? And it looks like you've got a novel way of working with some clubs to have access to some flags. And obviously other clubs that are maybe more private, they don't want you having their flags. How's that working out the relationships with the pro shops and stuff like that? It's the biggest push right now. It's working great. And there aren't any places that don't want us to have their flags because our flags are going to go back to their client. Like we're not going to take their flags and sell them to Joe Public. 
So it's just an upcycling deal where somewhere between the GM, the pro, and the superintendent has heard about us, and we're trying to get them to, hey, send us a couple flags. We'll turn you around a sample. You can show your pro shop what that looks like, and it's been working great. But we're still trying to get the word out. So mostly using flown flags, mostly using upcycled flags. It keeps the cost down. It's the game-worn jersey. So like I think that a flag at Bannon Dunes is more valuable if it's been flown versus brand new off the embroidery school. So just all kinds of intrinsic beauty about it. I think there is some karma deeply embedded in these flags. We've got Gil Hans just made his first real hole-in-one on a big course carrying our bag. Matt Janella made another hole-in-one carrying his bag. Just had a superintendent from Gray Walls in Marquette, Michigan, make one on a trip to Scotland with his bag. So I think the flag, saving it from the landfill and getting it out, I sound like a, such a salesman right now, but so I think there's some karma There's some karma in reusing these things. And as you mentioned, um, we have duffel bags that are taking off. We've only announced those four months ago. Yeah, yeah. Not everyone wants a bag that doesn't have a stand. So a duffel bag is a pretty good fit for you or as a gift to somebody that hosted you somewhere. I love this kind of bag because I love this kind of ready golf. Yeah. This is the kind of bag you got when you're playing ready golf. You're, you're not sitting around and, you know, like baseball used to be before the pitch clock uh, got involved. Just sitting around, a lot of wasting time with the stand and all the rigmarole you go through. So I love this bag. I love this idea. I, the upcycling thing is also fascinating. So are you saying that the only way to get these bags... Like, if I ordered it, could I order one with the San Francisco Golf Club flags on it? No, you cannot. What would be the their in, interest in working with us at that point? Because we're not paying them for the flags. That's we're, right. We're just okay. Getting, All right. We're going to turn it back into a product, and then the pro shop is going to make, you know— 30 to 40 percent on the sale of it back to the either to the client so so okay this is good so recently this you know i know like anybody in golf knows how exclusive and meticulous uh you know the masters is and augusta national is right and over the weekend you had this uh lovely series of tweets that went out during the par three contest uh where ben crenshaw uh, had a bag with the master's flags on it. So were those his flags or how does that particular thing work out? Cause boy, that was just great press, Josh. That's hopefully that plant in Oregon can make bags on a high volume. Bill, Ben's agent reached out to us. So we had built a bag for Bill Core about two years ago and it was like his resume. It was his favorite designs and it's the coolest bag you've seen. And then we were working with Save Muni through Ben's agent, the public course there in Austin. They're trying to, you know, keep it ground. And so we've been working with his agent. And just three and a half weeks ago, Scotty reached out to us and said, hey, you know, what if we had Ben carry a Save Muni bag in the par three? And, and I said, oh, that would be too cool. What if, what if we actually like took it a step further and, and made it a little bit more about his story and Save Muni? And we had, Kyle had sent us some Sandhills flags, you know, prior. And Scotty said, I've got some master's flags here. I'm going to turn around and send you a master's flag that's undated. And so all of a sudden the story came together and it was Sandhills, a flag from the course, a master's flag that Scotty had, and then two save Muni type flags. And we turned it around real quick. I texted Scotty the night before. I said, how's it looking? Did you get the bag? And he said, oh yeah, I hope he uses it. And he says, <laughs> it's been the, it's been the talk of the bag room at Augusta. So, you know, he played with Fred Couples and Marco Mira and, and Carl Jackson, you know, 54th year caddying at the Masters, he's carrying it. It just couldn't have been cooler. 
Will Zalatoris actually got rained out last year, and he was going to carry our bag in the Masters Par 3, one that we made for him. Uh, but it was just, it was so cool. So if I send, so so somebody could contact you with flags of their own, and you'll stitch them together into a bag. Exactly. Usually it's the, it's on the client to kind of send us their own story. We have some flags, but we don't have logo flags from, you know, this, that, and the other. We're, we have some old number, vintage. We could do some, like, picnic table checkerboard looking flags but normally it's going to be like hey what would my bag want to be and it's somewhere between three and six flags of whatever you want and um we'll put it together and you know duffel bags take four flags five flags head covers or valuable scotches just take one flag each so interesting so let me wrap up with just a couple of weather questions right uh where have you been impacted let's come right out of your business and back into your other day job it's great having this variety but just to just to catch up on how's the weather been were you part of that atmospheric river coming through josh and how has the course uh, fared we were we, we've gotten a ton of rain we've we have two different ways to check the rain and one's just a normal gauge and then one's like a high-end you know toro gauge out there and we're we're at over 60 inches of rain since we had a tiny storm in september so counting from you know october forward to now we've got 60 inches of rain and the course has taken it actually very well some of the creeks have have seen some sloughing the bunkers needed to be kind of put back a few different times but tee to green uh the course has been playing amazing and as you saw we've taken out a ton of cart paths just because in my time there i've seen in a four inch rainstorm we've got enough drainage out there we've got enough top dressing that the carts are getting around safely and not doing any damage so we've been really pushing the envelope on that with the lousy weather, they're not playing as much. 60 inches of rain, you probably had a lot of rain days. Yeah, there was definitely days where, where not too many people went out. But man, we, we definitely, again, we pushed the envelope to get carts back out and then the members were back out. And, you know, other than having to play around some ground under repair bunkers, it, we've done well. And I, I got to say, we've been very lucky, too. We only lost three trees. You've heard these horror stories yeah. in San Francisco of 60 and 80 mature trees coming down and I think because we have so many oaks, they're kind of stronger and lower to the ground or something, but we've, we've been lucky. Well, you saw the scary pictures at Augusta, from Augusta National that one day, didn't you? Oh, the video couldn't have been scarier, right? I mean, that must have been cracking enough that they could hear it to get out of the way, but wow. It's a miracle nobody was hurt. Listen, Josh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to have this wander through the many careers that you have. And, and I guess it's really, uh, we should thank your wife and kids who are, are along for the ride on this as well. Hopefully uh, this continues to go in the great direction it's gone so far for you, Josh. Thanks so much for taking the time. Appreciate having you. Absolutely. And can I just thank my membership and my staff? Because, you know, I, I can't do anything without people working with me at the country club and and the members too i've got a lot of people to thank along the way too so and especially you so thanks for having me on i'm happy to do it thanks josh josh smith i'm frank rossi this is frankly speaking thank you for joining us big thanks to josh smith Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca by Nate Richardson. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. The theme music is by Tucker Rossi. The artwork and avatar by Nicole Rossi. The executive producer of Frankly Speaking is Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.